0: Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
1: Good afternoon or evening, depending on where you are. This is Joe Shildenrein with another version and installment of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's program is uh, concerned with the topic of historical archaeology. Uh, Most of you have been exposed to many of our discussions on this field, but historic archaeology has a more unique focus than prehistoric archaeology because it also relies extensively on written records, and depending on which part of the world you are doing your investigation or absorbing your knowledge from, if you will, uh, there is a tremendous amount of information from historic periods, but as my next guest, my honored guest today will discuss, it's not always what it seems, and the archaeological record often tells us a tremendous amount about how people lived and what political and economic and social circumstances their societies functioned under, irrespective or in conjunction with, uh, I should say, the historic record itself. My guest today is Charles Orser, who is one of the pioneers in theoretical historic archaeology. He is the founder and editor of the International Journal of Historical Archaeology, and he is a research professor at Vanderbilt. University. He gained his experience in historical archaeology in the United States, eastern and southern parts of the U.S., uh, Europe, and specifically Ireland, which will be a basic focus of what we're going to be talking about today, and in South America, and most specifically in Brazil. He is the author of over 90 professional articles and a number of books, including Historical Archaeology, A Historical Archaeology of the Modern World, The Archaeology of Race and Racialization in historical Historic America, Race and Practice in Archaeological Interpretation, and Unearthing Hidden Ireland. He's also the founder, as I said, and the continuing editor of the International Journal of Historical Archaeology. His research interests include historic archaeology and anthropology, post-Columbian archaeology, practice, network, and sociospatial theory, globalization and consumerism, social inequality, discrimination, and poverty. His regional interest is in the Atlantic world. Charles, thank you so much for appearing on the program. It's a great
2: pleasure for me to be with you.
1: Charles, let's talk and 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 really focus on your current research, I think, as a baseline. I think a lot of our guests will be very curious in seeing how you are able to synthesize and integrate uh, the story of the Irish potato famine in connection with the archaeological work that you're doing. I don't think people are really aware on, of how extensive and how expansive, if you will, the information base of the archaeological record comes in support of historic documentation, and sometimes in opposition to that. Why don't you give us a little bit of information on how you got involved in this particular project and where it led you?
2: Right. Well, I became interested in the Irish um, because I'd always kind of been interested in Irish issues, but I never really knew how to approach it archaeologically, and I'd done quite a bit of research on and excavations on uh, African American slavery and there was always the kind of uh, interaction between the African Americans and Irish on plantations and there was always the sort of the myth of the uh, evil Irish overlord or overseer at these plantations and I became very interested in Seeing whether it would be possible to do the same kind of archaeology with the irish Irish immigrants in America as had been done and is continuing on african American history, so I looked into the literature and discovered there wasn 't a lot done uh, in in America uh, in the early '90s on on the Irish in America, so i uh, moved to Illinois to take up a position at Illinois State University and I became very interested in a a canal uh, called the Illinois and Michigan Canal that actually helped to make Chicago what it is today because it was a canal that connected the uh, Lake Michigan with the Mississippi River, which what that meant was that uh products could go from New York City up the Hudson and then through the Erie Canal and then into the Great Lakes and then reach Chicago and then go down the Illinois and Michigan Canal and then reach the Mississippi and eventually go down into uh New Orleans. So it was a big deal, this I&M Canal, and uh, I never really knew too much about it. And when I begun, began to do the research on it, I discovered that uh, it was all hand-dug by Irish immigrants, and I became very curious as to what kind of livelihood, what li- you know, kind of lives they had, and they were almost completely unknown. So that was kind of what we got me into it, was trying to do an archaeology of people who were poorly known in history. Of course, everybody knew about Irish immigration, but uh, there was practically nothing done on the archaeology, and so that's how I got interested in it. So I was able to interest a group called the Southside Irish um, Group uh, to fund a little project on the Illinois and Michigan Canal. And so we walked up and down the canal and found a few shantytown sites. And so I started to reason, well, if you could do that in uh, in the United States, maybe it would be interesting to learn more about where these people had come from. So that's what got me interested in actually trying to do the research in Ireland itself. So it was It started in America with Irish immigrants, and then I became interested in how the Irish lived in Ireland before they came to America. So it's kind of an interesting transatlantic journey, I guess you'd call it
1: now that that manpower that was utilized to excavate the canals and and obviously it was a tremendous amount of of labor did that population come in the early 19th century wave of immigration from ireland or was it post potato famine or what was the chronology of the first large-scale irish immigration or wave of immigration into north america
2: well the first large immigration would have been in the uh, late 18th century, uh, and pre-famine, early 19th, and those were mostly, uh, Protestant Irish who came in. Um, well, so, some people think they were a little better off than, than others who, you know, people who could afford the trip over. Whereas in the 1840s and 50s and 60s, the people who were coming over were mostly by and large, uh, people who had either been evicted or Uh, had suffered through the famine and came over, and those were mostly Irish Catholics. Uh, The Illinois and Michigan Canal was probably dug by a combination of both because it would have been slightly before the famine. But um, what happened after the famine, which began in 1845 and ended in 1850 or 51, depending on how you measure it, Right. Uh, a lot of those people actually moved to areas where Irish had already settled in America. So a number of the people from Ireland that I worked with uh, actually settled near the Illinois and Michigan Canal, which was kind of just a happy coincidence, really. I didn't expect that.
1: But but it would would have made sense, obviously, that they would be settling in areas where there was potential employment or there were like uh uh foundation industries that they would have yeah. gotten started, yeah, absolutely. so that was yeah
2: yeah absolutely, uh, and they went like you know you know yourself, a lot of Irish immigrants started in New York City because of various right. uh institutions that were set up to help them
1: and. Yeah and they were a very urban population here obviously they yeah, Absolutely uh, yeah they, but they a, lot of the,
2: a lot of them right. started in New York and then went on to other places too so it's you know it's really an interesting story
1: And so you got that impetus, so you developed the connection between Ireland and here, and then you decided that you were going to go back there and uh, start doing your research in that area to see if there was any linkage in terms of uh, how people developed their livelihoods, what type of connections there were demographically between uh, the ones who migrated and the ones who stayed. How how did that work?
2: Right. I wanted to do exactly that. I wanted to sort of be able to compare the life, lives that they had in the U.S. with the lives that they had in Ireland, and the way to do that archaeologically, of course, would be through excavation. But I, I discovered quickly that there hadn't been any large-scale interest in uh, 19th century uh, rural uh, life in Irish archaeology. What, what had happened in Ireland, there were a f- it's a small country and there aren't a lot of archaeologists uh, in the early nineties working there. So because there's such an embarrassment of riches in Ireland with all the great passage tombs and standing stones and temples right. and things like that, the archaeologists had never had a real interest in the 19th century. And, and most uh, archaeologists thought it was too recent and just wasn't very interesting. So when I went over to, scope it out and to see whether I could even do the research I just quickly discovered that there wasn't a lot uh, known about it in fact the archaeologists had done almost nothing on uh, 19th century archaeology so what I thought would be an incredibly rich database that I could tap into turned out to be very little and I had found that I had to create much of it myself that I was working like a pioneering archaeologist in an area that hadn't been studied, so I had very little to go on in Ireland. So uh, it was kind of interesting, uh, a little bit intimidating at the same time, because I didn't have sources other than historical sources to draw, and I didn't didn't have any archaeological sources. So um, I started out wanting to make these connections between the U.S. and Ireland and discovered that I had to start, almost from scratch in Ireland itself to recreate the livelihood and the the material culture elements of how they actually lived.
1: I think that's pretty interesting I mean a lot of us who uh, were trained and grew up in North America uh, obviously for us the 19th century is a very big deal because it's it's the uh, really sort of the industrial revolution and uh, the initiation of getting some very serious and dense archaeological deposits in in the new world and then of course over there I mean where the antiquity is so spectacular and they go back into the Roman periods et cetera Et cetera. They sort of looking at the nineteenth century stuff as sort of a, a sort of a sidebar, if you will, right?
2: Exactly right. That it uh, wasn't even covered by the legislation in Ireland, right? Really. Right. Yeah. The legislation stopped at the year seventeen hundred, so that it left right. out everything that I was interested in doing, uh, which you know also made it very interesting. But you know, it, it, the other thing that interested me about the paucity of information in Ireland itself was that. The Irish immigration of the uh, mid 19th century is one of the great stories of world history. Right. That that, uh, these people settled in America and Canada and Australia and it was a major flood of immigration and the Irish of course are major players in U.S. politics and uh, economy and so forth. Uh, but very um, little interest in Ireland yeah. itself about this period, and that, that was a really interesting thing for me.
1: So how did you get charged up to do that? I mean, you're starting to understand, obviously, from the North American perspective, because as you said, I mean, the Irish, uh, the footprint of the Irish in American politics goes back to probably the initial colonizations. And uh, then you go back there and you have a perspective that's probably not even shared over there. And so you're uh, you're really sort of, uh, in a sense, like you said, sort of doing some pioneering research, which sounds kind of odd because it is ultimately western europe (laughs) um, you know this is the birthplace of most of these uh, scientific traditions and yet here you are basically from what i'm gathering starting at ground zero
2: yes pretty much um i expected there'd be a lot of research done on the ceramics for example and you know that sort of thing and there really wasn't the, most of the information that I could glean about the period came mostly from, well, of course, historians who'd studied the period, but in terms of the material, culture, housing, and those sorts of things, it all came from the work of cultural geographers and folklorists who right. uh, had studied the old buildings and the old techniques of doing things and that sort of thing. So in the, archae- in the world of archaeology, it just didn't uh, enter into it. Also, there is a contributing factor that, Um, archaeology in europe as you know isn't anthropological it's just archaeology and it's separated from social anthropology so the perspective that they would have would be much more um, much different from mine in in coming at it as an anthropologist so uh, there was also that in addition to the fact that they hadn't studied the period itself they hadn't studied it as I would study it as a, as an anthropologist being interested in the, the life ways of the people in the same way that they would.
1: And we'll be back with Dr. Charles Orser of Vanderbilt University after these words.
3: News. Opinion voice counts call toll-free 1-866-472-5787 472 5787 VoiceAmerica.com.
0: are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life you may be running a successful business but how are your relationships with your family and children if you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all Tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story, coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age seven to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week.
3: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: We're back on this uh, special episode of Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. And we are talking to one of the pioneering figures in historic archaeology, Dr. Charles Orser of Vanderbilt University, who is undertaking a very unique project on historic archaeology of Ireland. And we had been discussing the different perspectives that North American and uh, uh, UK archaeologists, uh, to use sort of an umbrella, if you will, uh, English and Irish archaeologists um, are applying to looking at uh, relatively modern archaeology. And by that, I'm talking about the 19th century. And of course, some very major economic and political events occurred in Ireland in the 19th century, most specifically the the potato famine, which resulted in massive migrations to other parts of the English-speaking world at that time, and, and Charles Orser went over to Ireland because of his interest in um, the Irish imprint, if you will, on uh, archaeology and the emergence of, uh, of the 19th century economies of North America. So Charles, why don't you take us into your trip back to Ireland and how you started getting interested? In what kind of excavations you were able to organize and against what kind of a, a context and backdrop you okay. you, were, you were encountering at that point. Yeah,
2: sure. Well, I, we uh, did our first project in 1996, and uh, we did our final project in 2007. So we worked over there for about 13 years or so, uh, and I was off and on over there on sabbatical and so forth. So approximately about 15 years of Pretty solid research, but we did the excavations with students uh, as field schools, and we had about 250 students all told go over there with us and uh, excavate these sites. We excavated uh, six different uh, household uh, cabin sites, I guess you'd say, uh, in three counties, County Roscommon and County Sligo and County Donegal, and I chose those for a couple of reasons. One is they're in the west of Ireland which was the hardest hit by the famine. Right. Yeah. And also they were uh counties that were um had a lot of properties that and and people who were amenable to having us work work on their property. So it's kind of the the research linked with the practical aspects of being uh you know allowing asking people to allow us to work on their property. So um, right right. We worked on these we basically excavated these house sites um, that um, were had never been ex- excavated or even studied prior to that. I was lucky in a sense that I um, hit the research right at the right time in the sense that 1995 they were starting to talk about commemorating uh, the famine. Uh, and so they were planning a right. number of celebrations and commemorations and seminars and that sort of thing so when i asked if i could work on it um when i asked the office of public works if i could work on these sites because i had to have a license sure uh it just so happened to hit it at the right time so uh that's what allowed me to do it and then and that's sort of how it all began
1: now let me ask you this was there any interest on the part of the irish archaeological community in what you were doing or did they want to get involved at all how did that work
2: yeah, that was very interesting to me because it was more of a curious element to them. They were more or less kind of amused, I think, uh, as to why I would want to do this. In fact, I had one archaeologist in Ireland tell me that he'd known who I was and he knew, he had known some of my w- research and he was wondering why on earth I would want to go to Ireland <laughs> and study the 19th century. Right. And I said, well, you know, this, period that I'm interested in, and there's some incredible sites over here, and they just sort right. of, you know, shook their head and kind of were, I think, quietly amused by the whole affair.
1: They didn't is, take it seriously, or, I mean... I think it, at first,
2: I'm not sure that they did, um, but I think they did after a while, after, right. they, you know, we started to talk about what we were finding and how this was sort of changing the image of the so-called Irish peasantry, and, uh, you know, how the people were actually living. Um, I think it began to take on more of a, oh, I guess I'd say more serious element to a lot of the Irish academics when they began to see that the archaeology really did have a value. That of course. We weren't, simp- we weren't simply, you know, mimicking what says what it says in the historical records.
1: Of course. Uh, and it was so- really interesting so you got started and your research design was pretty well set up now did you look into obviously um one of the the key backdrop issues here is that the religious divide was very clearly expressed during the famine. I mean, the uh, Catholics were working the fields and uh, the Protestants for, were, were pretty much in charge, right? I mean, that's, right. how, it, that's how it pretty much broke down. So to, uh, using that as sort of a baseline, how, how, did, how did you go about doing and structuring your work?
2: Well, we started on a, on an estate called the Strokestown Park House and, uh, in County Roscommon. And we started there because, uh, the owner of this large estate house called Strokestown Park House was building a famine museum, which would be the first one in, in Ireland. There wow. has never been a museum or even a, you know, any sort of commemoration for the famine before this. So they were just beginning to build this and that's why a cultural his, um, Geographer re- recommended that I go over and speak to them because they ha- actually had an interest in the famine. So mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of how it began: is uh, linking up with a group. Not a; they were not archaeologists. Uh, they were museum people who were developing developing a museum, and we made the case that there were things that we could provide for the museum that would help tell the story of the famine before the life, before, during, and after the famine. Using right. the material culture,
1: and so you got started, and you you had selected these counties. In I know that it was it was because it was western uh, western Ireland, which was clearly rocked by it by the by the famine. But how in particular these are these areas, because of this connection that you had. With uh, yeah, with the museum yeah, people, yeah, it started
2: with simply with the uh, connection to the Strokestown Park House. So one of right. the b- beauties of that place it was a unique historical event. Um, let me tell you a little bit about their history, and then it might explain why that place was so interesting and why it had such good documentation. Mm-hmm. Very unique uh, story, in a sense that it had started out as a crown uh, property. Um, with the landlady being uh, Queen uh, Victoria. So what had happened was that the, as soon as she took over the management of the estate, the peasants, so-called peasants, stopped paying their rents In uh, right before, I guess it was right before she became the queen. She was still the princess. Uh, they stopped immediately paying their rents. And what happened was that they went on this big rent strike. And, of course, the Queen's representatives became very interested in this rent strike. So they have an incredible uh, historical record of what happened on this estate, including a map, an an incredible estate map that shows the locations of all the farms, which I hadn't seen before in Ireland. So there was this incredible map drawn in uh, the 1840s of the estate that shows the locations of all the houses. So we were able to pinpoint the approximate location of the various house sites themselves uh, because today you would never know that the, anybody ever lived in these places if right. uh, you were to walk on them. They're just pasture land. And in fact, I've often told my students that. The landscape that people go to Ireland to, to see is a landscape of dispossession because if they'd been there 150 years ago, they'd see a bunch of houses and people doing things. But today it's just pasture. And so these house sites mostly became just pasture land because once the people moved out, the houses were torn down and, and uh, they became grazing land, which is what they remained until till today. So what we did, armed with this map at... Uh, in uh, Strokestown, we were able to go out and more or less pinpoint the locations of these houses and then we did geophysics on the houses so we could identify the specific locations that we thought they would be and then excavate there. So we had a a combination of good geophysical information and good cartographic information that helped us pinpoint these specific locations.
1: So you had, uh, I'm assuming, you had uh, you ran some ground penetrating radar yes and then the other question i was going to have for you because we do this a lot in, in many parts of, of north america as you, you know was there any disturbance vegetation that gave you some hints that there might have been a structure in one area or was just a uniform pastureland that no, really just
2: yeah. just uniform pasture you'd never really
1: know you, would, you, you wouldn't would know have right
2: yeah okay we did we did excavate a couple of mud cabins um, that were you could see if the sun was at the right angle uh, on those right. rare days that the sun was shining in Ireland. Yes, uh, you could see the little humps, but otherwise, every other site you'd never know they were there. It was okay, really amazing. So,
1: so the GPR basically gave you a lot of information.
2: That and uh, and just the magnetometer <laughs> work, which would would show the nails and things like that.
1: Of course, and and the maps were pretty good.
2: Maps were that map was uh, was excellent, okay it was uh, made by engineers uh, and it was made for the crown, so I guess it had to be accurate, but it was a really an amazing map, and i've seldom encountered such a good
1: source as that of course, so then what happens then you start getting into it?
2: yeah, then we just you know peel back the sod, and basically that's where the site is, um, very little soil on top, um maybe. Maybe six inches at most. It was just amazing.
1: Uh huh. And so, so then you, all of a sudden it starts to come alive.
2: Right, and then you've got the, the the stones from the from the site, the house sites. What happened in the the way these houses were built is they would put together large stones on the outside, uh, two outside walls, and then fill them up with fill in the inter part, intermediate part with small stones. And so what happened when they would tear these houses down, they'd typically move the big stones and put them in other walls or wherever and just leave behind all these little this little scatter of, of small stones that would, would have been inside the stone walls. So when you peel back the sod, what you see are the small stones from inside the walls mixed with all the artifacts that the people had because at Strokestown, they were forcibly evicted, so they were not able to take anything with them when they left to go to, the, to, go to New York. So um, most of the artifacts were, were right there, right under the surface.
1: Okay, if if we were to ask you, what what was there? You, you're peeling back the sod, and all of a sudden, are you looking at dense... Evidence of of cultural habitation, artifact densities, or simply structural stains and and residual wood and and stone, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, mostly it's it's stone, a um, uh, uh, concentration of stone mixed with artifacts. Uh, on a couple of the houses, there were still the hearth from the fireplaces were still visible. Um, some evidence of the walls. Uh, but mostly density of artifacts and stones that would indicate where these houses stood, and if you know you could correlate those with the maps pretty closely uh, and then they because the maps were so accurate, you could then pretty much assure whose house you were digging in, and because the Because of the map, we knew who the inhabitants of these houses actually were, which was really nice.
1: And we will return with our guest, Dr. Charles Orser of Vanderbilt University, after these messages.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
0: When you think of museums, what comes to mind? Is it ancient history? Rotating displays of collections? Are they nice places to visit? Or are they essential to our cities and society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert. We'll discuss what the attraction is and historical importance of museums and what they contribute to the economic makeup of our cities and country. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: Dr. Charles Orser is with us today. Uh, Dr. Orser is one of the uh, pioneering figures in historical archaeology in North America. And we were discussing during the break that uh, the perspectives that North American archaeologists have are in many ways very different from those uh, across the pond, if you will, because of the anthropological tradition that in in our part of the world teaches us to look if 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 you will at a at a more holistic perspective on how societies formed and how they function rather than just simply being uh interested in the antiquities themselves and and looking at the specific evidence of the archaeological record in, in a vacuum and uh, Dr. Orser was able to develop a, a, a synthetic perspective based on his excavations and we're talking about how those excavations were conducted and what the findings were in this part of Western Ireland that uh, gives us some documentation on social organization, political responses to the potato famine, and uh, the types of scenarios that existed in Ireland during the middle 19th century. Uh, Charles, why don't you expound a little bit on that. Tell us about your archaeology and how you were able to put together the information and the richness of the record itself.
2: Yeah, The, the, uh, the archaeological record was incredibly rich. I didn't quite know what to expect uh, from reading the, um, the, the historical information. Uh, because the irish rural Irish farmers were usually described as peasants and right. uh, you know has a connotation of maybe backwardness or inward looking or that kind of thing so um, what happened to me personally is when I first went over to Ireland, I was invited to go to a um, seminar of historians, and um, after the session i was talking to a historian who was asking me what i was doing in ireland and what i was interested in doing and i said well i wanted to do this archaeology of uh, rural ireland dealing specifically with the the famine period and and he said to me well um that's a, a, a real waste of time because they were just peasants and they never had anything and we we know from the history that they didn't have anything now, for me that resonated because that was the same thing that was said here in America about African American slavery. Of that course. it was pointless to excavate slave cabins because the people were slaves and didn't have any artifacts. And so I knew when he said that that I must have been onto something because of course archaeology has completely changed the perspective of African American enslavement. So I knew that there might be something to it. Sure. So um, if you do look at the record, the historical record of the period, what you discover is that the comments that are made, and I've looked at many, many contemporary comments, most of the people are writing about how poor the the people are, and how destitute they are, and how backward they are, and and this sort of thing, and some of that is true, I mean there were definitely poor Irish people, just like there are everywhere, um, but by and large what we discovered is that the um Irish farmers that we disc- that we were working with were um incredibly tapped into the market the 19th century marketplace and we really didn't expect that we um I didn't like I said I didn't know what to expect I expected that a lot of their artifacts might be made of wood and have disappeared or baskets and that sort of thing. But we discovered uh, when we started to excavate that in terms of the ceramics, for example, these people had just about everything that you would have found in any mid-19th century house uh, in, in the United States. So rather <laughs> than being sort of backward people making all their own products, they were very much tapped into the British marketplace and, and having all the dishes that you would recognize uh, here in um, in America. Now, what's interesting about that, it's, it has to do with how they were living, because the image that is usually portrayed about these people is that they only ate potatoes, which I think is basically true. But the idea would be that they would sit around on the floor eating their potatoes out of a big uh, iron cauldron. And there right. are drawings of this, and it's quite... Common in the folklore of the period, but looking at the artifacts of that period, you find plates and, and teapots and teacups and saucers and all manner of vessels that they're just not supposed to have had, right? Uh, and they did have those, so it kind of changes your perspective on on the people's livelihood. You know how they were very cleverly uh, acquiring these material things. We're not entirely certain how that was working, uh, but we do know that, that it was, they were tapped in and it was working somehow, that these tenant farmers were very much involved in the marketplace.
1: Well, uh, would you say then that their economic condition was not as dire as it might have been portrayed if you're simply categorizing them as peasants? I mean, they were, obviously had the wares and the pottery and the ceramics. I assume they had pipe, you found some pipe stems and, and oh, this yeah. type of thing. And so uh, what, what is that telling us really about their economic status?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting point because it's an extremely controversial point, um, it depends on your modern view of the famine. Now, the famine was terrible. There's absolutely no question about it. Half the population in Ireland either died from, uh, mostly died from disease uh, or some from hunger, but by and large, disease was the real killer. And and half of the population was either killed or displaced and sent right. out of the country. Uh, but it does appear to me that some people, at least, some of the farmers were developing into a middle class um, lifestyle that was very, as I said, very similar to what you'd find in America. The problem is that because they were paying rents, they typically did not improve their houses. It would seem that much of the improvement that they did was on the interior where that couldn't be seen from the outside. Because if they were to improve their house, upgrade the house, put better thatching on, or perhaps even slate roof, um, there's a chance that they might be evicted and replaced with a Protestant farmer. So they were very careful, I believe, to improve their lives, but on the inside of their homes rather than ostentatiously on the outside.
1: The outside.
2: Really an interesting thing to think about.
1: And the other thing I think that... I, I. the historic record shows is that even though the potatoes were decimated, uh, Ireland was still producing grains at that time. That's one
2: of the great ironies of this: is that they did have to produce grains to pay their rents, yes. Um, and their diet was potatoes. Now, from what I understand, most of the military records of the British military at the time showed that the Irish were incredibly uh, fit, healthy people so they you know they subsisted on uh, mostly on potatoes but were yet a very healthy um population of people
1: right and they that's were right. obviously very hard working i mean yeah, working absolutely. in the fields all the time sure and it is
2: very rocky as you as you probably know oh yeah uh, you know it would not be an easy place to be a farmer that's for sure no,
1: no especially in the western part where there's yeah. uh, it's so craggy um right. Right, and so let's so proceeding in your excavations. How how big were most of these houses? How how were they structured? Rooms and and domestically, how were they organized?
2: Typically, there would be um, one or two rooms only. Um, a few of the well, the mud cabins that we did were one room cabins. Uh, the uh, British. Um, Census divided the houses into houses of Ireland into four categories. Category one being where the the landlords would live, you know, the big mansion houses that are still around. Category two would be sort of um, urban houses where merchants might live. And then category three would be houses with maybe one window. And stone, and then category four would be sort of the the worst housing, the mud cabins, and that sort of thing, so most of the cabins uh, in the rural uh, setting would be third and fourth class houses, so they'd be small, maybe three rooms at most, uh, many of them would have the the cow that they had right in the house with them, or a pig if they had a pig would mm-hmm. live in the house because you know those rather than being a filthy habit, that was very important to them to keep the health of these animals because that's how they help to pay the rent as well. So That's their livelihood, um, too. Absolutely. So um, a lot of what went into the historical record was prejudice against people who had what was a very sensible kind of um, mode of living in an environment where where they uh, had to pay the rent and at the same time subsist. So um, it was very interesting from that angle as
1: well. Any information on the size of the family units? Was it varied? Could you um, tell it, from, yeah, from the census it, it, records?
2: It, yeah, the third and fourth class housing were small houses, maybe, like I say, two or three rooms. Probably, I would guess, maybe 20 by 20 at most a room would be, but that you know it would vary depending on, on where they were and how many children they had and that sort of thing.
1: Small and housing. We, And we'll be back and uh, expand our discussion on the social organization, political organization of, uh, let's call it the Irish Outback, if you will, um, after we get back from these messages. We'll be right back.
3: Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves.
1: My guest today is uh, Dr. Charles Orser, who is a research archaeologist at uh, the Department of Anthropology at Vanderbilt University, and uh, Dr. Orser has been working in Ireland for many, many years, and as we have discussed over the course of this program, um, the Irish perspective on archaeology is a little different from the one that North Americans have uh, typically been trained to follow and to pursue. and. Uh, his work was actually seen as a little bit anomalous, if you will, uh, by the Irish archaeological community. But uh, as many of you know, especially people who work in in uh, in the eastern woodlands of the United States and and work in historic sites, the Irish imprint and uh, on on uh, on the industrial revolution in the United States and and just their population of urban areas is 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 something that's that's being extensively explored. Certainly in New York City and major northeastern areas and we know a lot about it and uh, Charles, I was uh, talking to Charles over the break and he was saying that um, because of his work and some of the things that he's done actually in Ireland, there seems to be a continuity and a connection between the Irish who have settled in, in North America and the folks who left in the wake of the potato famine. Charles, why don't you give us a little bit of information on the Strokes Down excavation and how you establish that connection?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, well, one of the things that allowed us to know about the history of the place was that the historian had written a book published in 1995, right about the time that I was gearing up to do this research. Uh, and it was a book about the famine in this one uh, area called Valley Kilcline. And um, Valley Kilcline is a townland, which is the smallest administrative unit in ireland and so people would talk about where they came from in terms of their townland so the people of bally uh were written about in this book and and the reason this historian could write this book is because of the incredible history historical documentation that had uh, come about because of the rent strike so there was a pretty good documentation about it but um he kind of left it off with the immigration. Uh, the people at Valley Kilkline were forcibly evicted because of the rent strike and sent to America. What had happened is a, a number of people who had an interest in the Irish, Irish Americans, in fact, read this historian's book and discovered that they were, in fact, descendants uh, of some of these evictees. So what they did was develop a society of of uh, descendants called the valley kilkline society and they have an organization that still exists and they get together and have meetings and uh do genealogical research and through their research uh, we've been able to identify a lot of the people who um came to america where they settled exactly where their graves are uh who their descendants are their descendants are all over the united states um uh, and, uh, they get together maybe two, every two years and have, uh, a reunion. The first reunion they hel- held was in fact at Ballykill Kline while we were excavating there. So it was a great treat, uh, for us to be there. And in fact, the house that we were excavating, uh, one of the descendants of the man who lived in this house was actually at, at the reunion. So he was able to see where his, uh, ancestors actually had lived and to see some of the artifacts that they owned and for me the most touching thing was that uh, he knew his ancestors he knew their names because of the genealogical research he'd done sure and one of the things that we discovered was that while he was there in fact it just so happened that we were digging and found this little tiny silver thimble very tiny little thing they were mass-produced in the 19th century and not that spectacular of an artifact but this one said forget me not on it and it was something that you'd give your sweetheart or somebody maybe if you were leaving to immigrate you'd give somebody one of these symbols your sweetheart or mother or whoever and it says forget me not on it
1: of course and this
2: man saw this thimble and he was so touched by it he broke into tears because that was what he knew it was his great 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 grandmother's thimble and his goal was to In doing the genealogy, was so he could would not forget his his uh, ancestors. So it was really a touching moment.
1: And where 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 are they based? The the group.
2: The group are all over the United States, from New Jersey to Canada or uh, to California. Rather, Uh, one or two are in Canada, but uh, mostly a United States group of descendants. So one of the interesting things from an archaeological standpoint for me was in thinking about heritage. Um, the heritage for the the, the, the descendant community, actually, uh, for the sites, at least Valley Kilkline and many others, are not in Ireland itself but are in the United States.
1: Interesting. Which,
2: which is really interesting because you have... People who live in Ireland now may not have the same connection to the sites that people in the United States and Canada and Australia have because they're not actually connected to those sites, if you know what I mean.
1: Of course, yeah. yeah. The people who
2: have the biggest stake in what's happening are not Irish citizens, are actually American or Canadian or Australian citizens, but yet they they may care more about these Irish sites than some of the Irish themselves, which is of really course. interesting. It's so, really a fascinating sort of angle on, on the archaeology because it takes on this transnational connection that makes a lot of sense. But I really didn't expect that uh, when I started this research.
1: Of course not. Now, once you, uh, once you had established uh, what you were doing, did you find increased interest in the archaeological excavations on the part of the archaeologists in Ireland themselves, did they, um, did they, were they interested in what you were doing? Did they get a little bit of insight into historical archaeology and what it could produce?
2: Yes, I believe they really did. I think uh, that was something they were coming slowly to. Um, the greatest impact, by far, though, was on the local communities who um, really found it. I think heartening that we would take such an interest in the local history and be so dedicated to doing the research. I think for the archaeologists, they're starting to think more about historical archaeology and possibly having one or two courses. At present, they don't have any courses in historical archaeology at all, except in uh, in Northern Ireland, which is part of the U.K., and which, is, of course, of course have, has had historical archaeology f- for some time. But in the Republic of Ireland... Courses are practically, in fact, I think they might, might still be non-existent. There might be one or two developing, but very rare, very rarely. But I hope that our research has had something to do with helping them to move into this period and take it more seriously.
1: But, but one of the points that you did bring out, and I think it's very true, is that the significance of these excavations and the findings are really, in a sense, much more relevant to the people who migrated out.
2: Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, which is really interesting. It one is. of the sites we excavated was uh, the, the people had been evicted and gone to Australia, and one of the Australians actually came uh, to see the site while we were excavating it. So there's a, a really a great interest um, around the world amongst Irish Americans or Irish Canadians or whatever who you know have um,
1: ancestors who
2: lived in Ireland and were forcibly or voluntarily left.
1: And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up our very fascinating discussion with Dr. Charles Orser of Vanderbilt University and uh, certainly Irish archaeology and Irish-American archaeology is a a, a big uh, area of research here in North America. And uh, Charles, I'm hopeful that you'll come back and discuss these topics with us at a future date. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Charles, and good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for participating and being involved. Thank you.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.